This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Welcome to Doing Translational Research. I'm your host, Tony Burrow, Director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research. Today, I'm joined by my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Misha Ennis-Thompson, who is an assistant research professor in the Department of Psychology at Cornell University. Dr. Ennis Thompson received her doctorate in Community Research and Action at Vanderbilt University. She's an alumnus of Cornell's Department of Human Development, and she was here as an undergraduate student, is where I first met Misha when she was in human ecology. Um, Dr. Ennis Thompson's research examines the impact of families, communities, and schools in shaping Black girls' mental health and wellness using a cultural assets perspective. We are fortunate to have Dr. Ennis Thompson's knowledge and expertise here at Cornell and present with us in today's episode. Welcome, Dr. Ennis Thompson. Thank you so much, Tony. I'm excited to be engaged in this conversation with you today. Wonderful, wonderful. So one of the first things I think I we could benefit from is to invite you to better characterize the work that you do. If in your own words, you could help our listeners understand what is the big question that your work is aiming to answer? Yeah, so my main research question is really thinking about how do we create spaces that support Black girls' mental health and development and wellness. And when I talk about wellness, I mean, um, SAMHSA describes it as how we live our lives in a way that allows for joy, fulfillment, and health. So I think about how do we promote joy, fulfillment, and health among Black girls, especially as they go from middle childhood through adolescence. It's really interesting. And and you broke down your understanding of wellness and, and the ways in which you think about that. Can you say more about spaces? Can you say more about how you think about designing and creating spaces? Is it physical spaces, social spaces? What do you What do you mean by that? So I think about spaces in a range of ways. I think first in terms of physical space. So for instance, after school spaces where young people can get together um, outside of the nine to three school day. What does it look like to be in a space with other, in this instance, black girls? I think about also imaginative spaces. So for instance, what does it look like to have room to be able to imagine a world where you feel free and well? So I also think about epistemological spaces. So thinking about where the spaces where Black girls' ways of knowing are honored. So the ways that they understand the world and experience the world, where are ways that that can be honored and celebrated? That's 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 wonderful. Um, the sort of the complexity and the intricate nature in which you think about the spaces and how your work can push in all of, all of the directions. That's 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 really interesting. Um, in your work. Do you involve community partners or agencies or other sort of non-academic stakeholders in your in your process? Yes. So without community stakeholders, my work wouldn't exist. I work I've worked with a range of different types of community stakeholders, whether it's nonprofit organizations, schools or community centers. I assume the fact that they're role in your work and participation in your work makes it go that is sort of the the, the ingredient here um, that it's been an over it's been generally positive experience but could you characterize what the experience has been like with you um, in particular are there a certain kind of challenges or even opportunities that you've encountered in working with community organizations or partners yeah so I would say that working with community partners I think especially so most of my involvement has been working with schools. I think it's been life-changing because it's pushed me to think about 
myself as a researcher, I have my own ways of thinking about how schools work and operate. And then actually being in school settings and interfacing, for instance, with principals, with teachers and having conversations with them, as well as having conversations with girls themselves about what is your experience like in this school. I think a big challenge is even being able to get into a school. Um, this was luckily pre-COVID. Uh, so my first involvement in a school was in about 2018, but having these trust, building trustworthy relationships. So being able to say, I'm a researcher and I also want to be here because I want to be in community. Um, and being in community means that I had to take, it, it was about a one and a half year process to even get to know the school, get to know the girls with whom I was working. And then I said, okay, now that I am aware with my surroundings, how do I then think about what research, what research might we be able to do together? So it sounds like there's even beyond the interest and recognition that there's community, the communities that you want to know more about and work with, and then there's structures within the community, whether they be schools or otherwise, that you need to engage to promote the work. There's a relationship and, and, a, and, a, and a partnership and a rapport maybe that even needs to get built before you can delve into the, re you don't just show up on day one and say, here's my research question. Here's a relationship. Right. Is that, right. is that sound, is that pretty accurate? Yeah. Yeah. And I think even with, so being in a school where they were used to they were used to researchers coming in to do research. I had to be very clear that my goal actually wasn't to go immediately and figure out how can I study Black girls, but it was to say, how can I figure out what are the lived experiences of Black girls in this particular context? And, and this was while I was at Vanderbilt, so in Nashville, how, what are their needs? What are their experiences? And then from there, how might that shape the research that we're doing? So what's interesting is I have a question about this because in, um, with all of the interest in, in youth development and oftentimes the need to access schools and create and support relationships with schools so that you can do this kind of research, I, I, have, a, I have a question about whether there is or you've experienced any tension with schools or school districts that are relevant to the specific kinds of research or questions that you want to do. I mean, on one hand, these schools are, are serving young people day in and day out. And then you're coming to better ascertain or learn something about their lived experience. And I wonder if there's ever any tension that you have to confront or navigate around the questions you have about their experiences that may be happening in, by, in or by those schools. I would say all the time. I think especially <laughs> okay. because my primary audience, the folks who I am like most indebted to are Black girls themselves. And I also recognize that to do this work, I have to also interface with folks like the principal of the school. And so oftentimes there was a tension of, for instance, the girls sharing their experiences with their teachers, with their principal. And sometimes those were not positive experiences. Oftentimes they brought up challenges that they were experiencing with the very same people with whom I was interfacing. And then it became of like, okay, I am sort of straddling these two spaces. What are the things like, how do I hold this space as sacred and safe for the girls so that they know I'm not just going to go tell the principal exactly what they said, but also saying like, because I'm in this middle space, I can tell the principal some things. Like when the girls are saying, here are our recommendations for how you can better support our well-being. You can better support our emotional wellness. That then I have a responsibility to share with the principal. But trying to manage this confidentiality has been, it's definitely been a, a tension and a challenge, but also a, a good learning experience. Yeah, that, that is that's so interesting. On one hand, the, there is a perpetrators or 
the the context in which some of these experiences are happening may be the school itself. But then when you work through that and you produce evidence that better illuminates what's going on, then the immediate environment is sort of clear to you. Like the, it, you, your, your, your research could actually be relevant for the school in which the youth you're working with matriculate. And so in some ways you have to first navigate access, but then the audience may be a very captive immediate audience in which your work can be translated. Right, right. Yeah, I would just say the the other thing is I think part of what's been so fulfilling is that folks like the key stakeholders, like the principal and teacher, the teachers are actually interested in hearing what are the implications of the work that you've been doing? How can we do things like, for instance, there have been recommendations around like, can can students have mental health days where they can actually take care of how they are feeling without the consequences of being in a high stakes academic setting? So I think there's this there's this interest and it's thinking about how do you catalyze that interest based on the conversations, the relationships built to then inform potential policy changes. See, see, that's the, that, that's really interesting because the, the broader connection of, the, of your work is to learn something about the youth you're engaging with, the environment they're matriculating, but then ultimately the, the scalability, the generalizability of what are the policy uh, implications of your work is really interesting. Um, I guess sort of pushing in that direction then. So thinking about the general area in which you do work. So Black girls' mental health and well-being. Um, what are some things that you'd like the general public to know or, or understand about your work or its inferences or, or sort of take the big takeaways from your work? Yeah, I would say there are two really big takeaways that I think are ones that I'm pushed to remember every day. So I think first is this importance of listening. In this case, I do my work with Black girls, but I say listen to young people in general and Black girls in particular. What I've learned is there's a there's a quote by a poet, Nikki Finney, who I really enjoy. Um, and she once said, Black girls know the answers to a world of questions, but no one is asking them. And so I think about what are the ways that for me as a Black woman doing research with Black girls in community with Black girls, how am I using their stories as these powerful tools that can have implication for educational policy, social policy? So I think first and foremost, we can you can say that of any young person, um, listen to what they're saying, listen to their stories and their lived experiences, because they can shed light and also offer really policy implications that you might not have ever thought about as a as a stakeholder, as an adult. Um, and I think the second one is really the importance of co-constructing spaces with young people and with Black girls in particular, where they can feel safe. And I think there's this importance of co-construction, because I think oftentimes in school settings, folks will bring in or stakeholders will bring in people like uh, security or school resource officers or some something that they bring in in an attempt to create, create a safe space. And I think instead about how might we actually ask young people, what does safety look like for you? And how can I help facilitate that safety? How can I help ensure that you feel safe as you're navigating your life on a day-to-day basis? Hmm. So a couple of themes here. One, you ended with sort of the theme of safety um, is not an, it, it can't simply be assumed to be present. It, it needs to be constructed and, and, and in your suggestion, co-constructed is to really understand what does safety look like and feel like and push in that direction with youth, uh, sort of active uh, participants in that process. I mean, the first piece, I think, is an interesting reminder um, or nudge from you. It sounds like that it, it also may not be enough to simply um I guess, honor youth voice, but to ask questions. 
right? right? So to in on, in honor, they're active answering those questions. So you you really want to know, and then you take seriously what you're learning. It sounds like you're an advocate of, of listening to what young people have to say and incorporating right. that in what in what they would do. Is that is that does that resonate with your sense of things? Yeah, yeah, because I think they they have so much knowledge that even as myself as someone who I think so much of what happens in adolescence is it's a time of like a period of exploration, as you know, and so and um, forming of identity and, and imagination. And I think as we get older, um, I know I've tended to forget like, oh, there are actually possibilities. There are like the world can look different if we start to look at it in a different way. Yeah, it's really a good reminder that, that we are aging, Misha. That, that, that young people hold have a, have a real resource that the rest of us could really benefit from it and tap into. It's a cool, cool reminder of that. Um, okay, so working through your work, um, you have these highlights that you'd want kind of the average person to really take away. When you think about your work as a whole, uh, what is one real world change? that you wish you could make based upon your work? Like, what would it be if you thought your work could actually make a change in the world? What would that be? So I thought about this, I've been thinking about this for a while because I think it's a really big question and an important one. And the thing I keep trying to think about, like where, how do we match not only this desire for change, also with like actual resources. And so I think I would start with the need for resources. So I think about how so often one of the biggest challenges in doing community-based work and community participatory research in particular is a need for funding to, for this work to happen. And so I think one big real-world change that's needed is a prioritizing of funding for co-created spaces and research projects that young people are involved in. Because I think so often it's, okay, well, what's the clear implication of this work? What are the direct ways that this will be beneficial to the things that we already deem as important? And I think, what if we actually said, we care about knowing what young people think is important, and we want to co-create that and uh, really curate that with young people, and there's money that's needed even in the even in the relationship building process, like doing things like offering young people um a place where they can get books, like have access to books that represent their lived experiences or watch movies together. All of these things require money. And so often those are things that are not seen as valuable in, in the research process. So I think prioritizing funding for co-creative spaces, but I think also prioritizing um, for researchers, prioritizing um, this relationship building. And then I think if I were to, because I think it's also important to think about outside of academia, what would I want that real world change to be? So I would say that real world change would actually start with this listening that I alluded to earlier. So I think we can't really change a lot if we think that we have all of the answers to what that change might look like. And so well, how do we listen to Black girls in particular about what their experiences are, what their needs are, what their insights are, and then work with them um, as opposed to listening to them and then deciding here's what we're going to do anyway. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it seems like um, a nudge to kind of put our money where our mouth is and, and, and stop thinking about listening as sort of a nicety, but a necessity that, that, that the answers themselves would drive funding decisions. And I, right. okay, so this is what we collectively want to do. And it sounds like you, th you see Anita, well, it, just knowing what we want to do is not enough. You need the funding and whatever kind of resources would help push that forward is also a part and parcel of, of this. Um, really, really, really compelling um, idea here. 
when you think about the totality of your work and even your reading of other work like your own, the, the literature in which you engage in, and when you, you're the scholarship you're producing and consuming to do your work, what evidence do you think the world is still waiting on? So is there, is there a kind of study, a, a finding, some big conclusion that you think would make the difference between the world as it is and the world as it should be? Like, what is the world waiting on when it comes to your science, your research, or others to really make the difference that you'd like to see? Ooh, what is the world waiting on? I think that is a major question. I really love it. I think I think it, it starts at the level of um, recognizing the knowledge of marginalized people. I think it's the, like, it starts there. I think if marginalized people's ways of knowing were valued as important, that might like, I think that's the essential thing that happens first before we can even, before we can even like, cause there can be a finding, but I think even as I like, as I get more into qualitative research, because as you know, I was trained as, trained as a quantitative researcher. As I get into more qualitative research, there's this question of why does this matter? Um, and so I think about with qualitative research, this like at baseline, this is an important, this is an important way of studying that helps bring in marginalized voices and offer perspectives that would not otherwise um, be acknowledged. And so I think that's the world is waiting on, there's probably one say the world is waiting on itself of like, of recognizing the importance of other people's ways of knowing outside of what we've been taught is important. And I don't know, does that answer your question or do you want me to say more? No, 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 no. I, I want you to say what you said. And um, I have even asking it, I realize it's a insanely, ridiculously big question, but I just want the world to hear you reflect on that. Like, like we're, we, we are in one of our identities, researchers, and the podcast is consumed by some researchers, but a lot of practitioners. And I think they have questions like, Where's the end? Where's this all this going for you? And like, I, and it is an interesting question for not, not so much the practitioner voice, but the researcher voice is like, is this just an endless game of the next question, or is there a study? It's like when I, if I could ever produce that, the world would be different. And 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 I, let me just say, I um I really appreciate the the notion of we need the world to kind of fix its face, like we need the world to get right, because you're almost suggesting. Until it does that, no amount of evidence would seal the deal. It, it would it would fail to recognize the evidence that's produced as meaningful and a meaningful answer, which is very connected to your whole point. Is you can ask youth all day what they think, but unless you listen to them and trust that's evidence of what should be, it wouldn't matter how many times you ask them or what you ask them. And so you, you, have, you have a lot of internal consistency from a, from a quantitative research standpoint about about why you're doing this and what you're looking for. I just think it's it's, it's a beautiful answer. I think you, that you gave. Is there something that you'd like to talk about or say before we wrap up? That's like I didn't. I really wish I could talk about this or say that. Or you covered a lot of ground, but just I want to let you give you a chance to think. I if, I would like to share this with my friends or my partners. I want to be able to say this. So there's one. There's one piece that I, as I was reflecting, I think something that I really want to make clear. So for me, as a developmental community psychologist the ways that I understand Black girlhood are shaped by my own background and training, but also obviously my own personal lived experiences, which I know, Tony, you and I have talked about, but I think also for the audience to have this understanding of, for me, a lot of what brings me to the work that I do is my own experience growing up as a Black girl trying to navigate predominantly white 
and very wealthy spaces. And so I think I think a lot about how Black girls and Black girlhood is really shaped by really two things. So first, it's the geopolitical or the physical spaces that we are consuming and navigating, um, but also the stories that we create. And so I think a lot about what are the ways that we can really, I guess, what are the ways that we can leverage those stories? How can we leverage the stories so that they are meaningful and seen as meaningful for other people? Um, and then how do we make meaning ourselves? Like I think about this is this work is such a deeply personal, such deeply personal and work that I'm passionate about. And so it requires a level of reflection. And I think the same of practitioners. Like I imagine that the reason why practitioners entered the work that they're doing is because it's something that's personally important. And so I think I would encourage folks to continue leaning into like what is the what is the personal importance here, but also how might my own personal lived experiences be shaping how I'm interacting with folks because I think that's so important too. It, thank you for that. It, it seems almost inconceivable that social science researchers can disembody who they are, their lived experience from the questions they're asking, their approaches, their lay theories of the world and how they work. And in your work, it sounds like it's front and center. There's a there's an explicit recognition of your lived experience and the way it brings you to the work and your approach to it. Um, do you experience any tension on that boundary of bringing in explicitly your identity, your lived experience into a research realm where there may be a value of objectivity, generalizability. Have you ever confronted that? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's part of what led to my journey to become more of a qualitatively focused or minded researcher is because there is still this positive way of thinking, positivist way of thinking. That is, we as researchers are objective. We come in to study a problem, to understand a problem. And I think I realized that the reason why I even see Black girls' experiences not as problems, but as phenomena that I want to better understand is because I was a Black girl. Um, and I, I bring that experience into what I'm doing, even as I ask questions about Black girls' experiences um, today. And I think that that's, that's a I think it's a it's an asset in a lot of ways because I can say I could I know what my lived experience was like. I know what it was like for me to grow up in this place that was predominantly white and wealthy. But I want to know like what your experience is like in a different context than my own, in a different um, in a different era than my own. Especially as we think about in the era of COVID, what that looks like for young people. And so I think I can bring in my experience and oftentimes I can have the, I get the question of, well, why this population? And one, it's because it's one that I care deeply about, but also it's because I've also connected with other research and other, um, other bodies of literature that say, that really validate what, what I've, what I've seen is true. And so I get a chance to help contribute to that body of literature of like, how do we elevate Black girls' experiences as true experiences um, that are worthy of being heard and, and listened to. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's wonderful. It, it's it sounds like a real asset to be able to lay plain 
who you are and how your experiences have shaped the work you do, your orientation, the kinds of things you recognize as meaningful tools to bring to the work. Um, it just strikes me that that all of all of social science is is doing that. It's not it's not every day where people admit to that that right. they they're walking in with a perspective, and your perspective is is in the is in the front seat of of what you're doing, and sort of an interesting perspective on that I think can enrich the the field as a whole. So this was a wonderful conversation, um, and thank you for being here today, Dr. Annis Thompson. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Tony. We appreciate it, and to our listeners, we hope you join us next time on doing translational research. 